You're listening to the DNB Supply Show podcast, your number one resource for living the country lifestyle. This is your host, Matt Breckwald, coming to you from my place in the country to yours. Well, hello, everybody. Today, we are going to be talking all about managing your pastures and your rangeland in the fall, preparing for winter, and trying to maximize your forage production come next spring. And right now is the time to be thinking about it, no question about it. So we've got a gentleman named Scott Jensen, who's an extension educator with the University of Idaho, who's going to be coming on and talking to us all about that, giving us a lot of great advice on how to improve your pastures, how to start over if that's something that you feel you need to do, where to feed your cattle during the winter, where to feed your 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 sheep, your lambs, uh, your goats, whatever it may be, and really just to maximize the health and the productivity of your pastures. Hope you enjoy it, and let's get started. Joining me now is Scott Jensen, and Scott is an extension educator with the University of Idaho in Owyhee County, where he specializes mainly in beef cattle range and pasture management. Scott, thank you very much for coming on and talking with us all about range and pasture today. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Well, I am looking forward to the conversation and really eager to get advice selfishly for myself, but uh, also for all of the people in our listening audience. And so I thought what I would do is just start off by letting you kind of tell us about you. What is your history and, and how did you come to find yourself working in the great Owyhee County in, in extension work and knowing so much about beef cattle and pasture and range management? Well, I was actually was raised in southwest Idaho, graduated from Middleton High School and and then from there went to college at BYU. Have to add back in the glory days of BYU football, <laughs> national champion year. The Cougars. But from there I went to ranch in eastern central Texas and spent four years on a ranch there. And then returned to Idaho back in 1992, I believe it was. And so from there I taught high school agriculture for four years before I started with the University of Idaho. I actually started in Canyon County and then transferred out here in 2004 to Owyhee County. But I've been part of, I've always had an interest in livestock and beef cattle specifically. And then um, since I went to work for the University of Idaho, I have been part of a group, an extension group that teaches at the Lost Rivers Grazing Academy. And that is a four-day hands-on course in grazing management, basically. And and so over the years, um, I've really developed an, an interest and a, a passion for that. Well, that's actually a really good point you brought up. And I've heard of the Lost Rivers Grazing Academy. But if you could tell the audience about what that is really quick and, and who should attend and if there's any requirements to attend or, or any quotas on how many people can go. Well, the Lost Rivers Grazing Academy is held annually. Uh, we hold it in Salmon at Eagle Valley Ranch there. It's a four-day hands-on management-intensive grazing school. Probably the best part about the Grazing Academy is that it's a combination. About 50% of the time is spent in the classroom setting, and then 50% of the time is spent out on the ground. We give participants some pastures, a little bit of electric fencing materials, and some cattle. And then you're given a grazing assignment. You go out, you build a paddock, you put the cattle in, and you come back 24 hours later to see if you accomplished your objective. And from there, we we have discussions. You get a new assignment and move the cattle and build a paddock to try to accomplish what your new assignment is. And and so it's just the hands-on nature of that class that is extremely valuable. 
there really are not any requirements as far as being able to attend. We've had small acreage folks come up to um, some very large ranchers who have come and taken the class. I think no matter what uh, size operation you might come from, you will find some things, learn some things that will be very, very beneficial. If anyone is interested, contacting me would be the best way. We do have information on a on our website, hawaiicounty.net, and an extension, and from there you'll find the Grazing Academy. But it's a, it really is a great hands-on opportunity to learn or improve some grazing management skills. Is there a quota? Is there a cap on how many people can come and attend? Well, there is. Because of the hands-on nature of the class, we have to limit the number of people that can attend. And so it is capped at 25 I will say we have had folks from all over the place. We have now, I believe, our list has grown to attendees from 17 different states. We've had folks also from Canada and Mexico attend. Well, that's great that we've got such a uh, a hands-on and great way to learn pasture management here locally. And I guess, you know, what we'll do right now, Scott, is I'm going to take a commercial break. But when we come back, I want to ask you a few questions about pasture and range management and kind of find out what we should be doing in this fall and then early winter as it's coming right up on us. Okay, sounds good. Travel back in time for an immersive and inspiring lesson in science, technology, engineering, and history at the Warhawk Air Museum in Nampa, Idaho. At the Warhawk, you and your family will find some of the most iconic classic planes found anywhere in the West and learn how American aviation technology evolved from propellers to jet engines. And while you're there, you'll come to know the personal stories of the veterans whose commitment and sacrifice helped make our nation what it is today. For passes and more information about visiting the Warhawk Museum, go to warhawkairmuseum.org. Doc Martens became a household name in 1960 when their first work boot with a revolutionary air cushion sole rolled off the production line. Since then, they've been supporting the workforce from factory floor to construction sites with lightweight, flexible footwear that keeps you comfortable and safe with tons of toe protection, waterproof leather, and slip-resistant soles. Doc Martens Work Boots, industrial strength for any job site. Pick up a pair today at your favorite D&B Supply. All right, Scott. Well, now that we're back, I want to ask you, and I'm going to start off with kind of a general question, and really that is, how should we be managing our grazing areas for the rest of the year, you know, leading into winter, so uh, when we come out next spring, we get maximum forage production? Okay, well, fall is actually a, a very important and even, I would say, critical time in pasture management. A lot of times folks think that pasture is going dormant and it really doesn't matter how we graze it or how severely we graze it, but the reality is the fall is the time of year when forage plants are starting to, or they develop the growing points that will be the initial growth of those individual plants in the springtime. And so a severe graze in the fall can actually limit next year's uh, early production. So it's important that we manage the grazing and utilization uh, well. So I guess that leads me to a follow-up question then. When you say it can really impact the production the following spring if you were to overgraze here in the fall, how would you notice that in the spring? Would you still get that good kind of out-of-the-gates growth, but you just wouldn't get as much as you would if you managed it differently? Or will it take a lot longer for your pasture to get going in the spring? It's going to affect both of those things because we almost 
pretty much always get some good, what we call a spring flush. We get good spring growth, and that's um, typically when those grasses really take off and get going. But if there are fewer growing points that have developed in the fall, there will be fewer growing points, active growing points in the springtime, and so that initial flush will be reduced. The other thing about it is that most or a lot of folks have the mistaken impression that uh, all the energy reserves are stored in the roots. But grasses have fibrous root systems, and there really is very little energy storage there. Most of the energy reserves are stored in the lower stem bases of the grass plants. And so the bottom two, three, four inches, even though it might look like it's dried up and nothing's happening there, that's where that plant's energy storage bank is. And so come springtime, if that plant's been grazed shorter than that, it doesn't have the same energy availability to just take off and go. I've actually seen pastures side by side here outside of Marcine, where one pasture that owner ran some cattle on all winter long and it was grazed uh, just about down to nothing. The pasture right beside it was left with a four inch residual as far as the grass there. And I would say just by my observations, that pasture that was left with the residual was ready to be grazed a full 30 days ahead of the one that had been eaten short. Very interesting. So now when you say it was ready to be grazed, what was the determining factor to say, okay, this one's ready to go? So there we're looking at plant growth. In my opinion, a pasture should, we really like to try to graze between Typically, a minimum residual plant height would be around that four-inch mark. Too much growth, you know, once a plant gets so mature, at the grazing school we say if it gets 12 inches or taller, you're really looking at, hey, you've lost some of the, you know, the best quality of, of what was available. So we try to operate somewhere between about four inches and 10 to 12 inches. And so in in the springtime, you know, I'm going to say at least eight inches tall would be a very minimum starting point for mm-hmm. a pasture. And so it, it just took the one essentially an extra month to grow up to where it really was uh, had enough forage and, and material there to be ready to graze. Well, that leads me to this question then, Scott. So I have been told or received the advice in the past that if you're going to be feeding hay, which of course we're going to be in our region over the winter, that once everything is froze, the soil is froze and all of that, go ahead and feed out on those pastures, out on those paddocks, so your cattle herd or your sheep, your goats, whatever it may be, they can be returning nutrients to that soil to be utilized the following spring. Now, is that good or is that bad advice or is there is it somewhere in the middle? So I'm going to say that it's somewhere in the middle. I definitely think there are some advantages to um, feeding out on the ground there. There's livestock advantages being out in a pasture like that versus in a, a feedlot where you might, uh, you know, they're much more closely confined in that. And so definitely an advantage for the animals, generally speaking. The other thing is between the manure and the uh, 
actual nutrients that are contained in the forages you bring in, I mean, there are some real nutrient advantages to feeding out on a pasture as far as that soil is concerned. What we recommend, what I recommend is that if you do that, you don't do that on the same pasture year after year. So you would, you know, maybe over the course of three or four winters, you would only hit one pasture or a specific pasture one time in that time. And so it will be a little slower to get going in the springtime, but if you've got some others that you've held in reserve, then, uh, you know, you can be utilizing those Mm -hmm. while you give this the one you fed on time to recover and get going. And so these overgrazing issues that uh, we're talking about are them grazing the grass down below the area where it's storing the energy. If we're feeding out on those areas and once they're done eating the hay, once they're done sitting down and, and ruminating, they're going to get back up and they're probably going to graze that down below that level we were talking about, right? Yes. Okay. So that's why that you need to not do that with every every piece of ground you've got. So pick one to kind of reintroduce those nutrients into each winter if you can. Sure. And the other, I mean, there are some other real benefits just from a standpoint, organic matter and and a lot of things like that. There really are some benefits, but um, if we hit the same pasture every single year, it definitely provides some challenges for it. One other thing worth mentioning is if you do feed out on a pasture, you sure want to pay attention to the hay that you're using because a lot of times, you know, a lower quality hay easily could be bringing in some weed species that that you don't already have. And mm-hmm. so you just want to pay attention to that. Not saying that uh, buying lower quality hay is bad, but those would be some areas to be focused on in the springtime. And if you do see some new species or whatever come up, You'd want to jump on and treat them while they're small. Tell you what, let's take another commercial break. I've got more questions for you about feeding out on our pastures during the winter when we come back. Okay. Know what boots work as hard as you do? Georgia boots. Available to try on for size at D&B Supply. If you're on your feet all day, Georgia boots knows the feeling. That's why they've designed exclusive comfort systems that cushion and support down to the bottom of your soles. While on the surface, they shield you from tough conditions with one of the most durable leathers out there. See why they earned the nickname of America's Hardest Working Boots and pick up a pair of Georgia boots at your favorite D&B Supply. For cats and kittens with carnivorous cravings, D&B carries Merrick Perfect Bistro Grain-Free Cat Food, all-natural high-protein food that's a great value. Merrick Grain-Free Foods are cooked in the USA with the best ingredients for complete nutrition. There's nothing but the good stuff in the recipe, with no corn, wheat, soy, or byproducts. And without the grain, it's easier for your furry friend to digest. Merrick Grain-Free Cat Food, available at select D&B Supply Stores. All right, Scott. Well, I want to keep asking you a little bit about feeding out on pasture in the winter. So where I'm at, I'm over in Cuna, and I've tried to do this to reintroduce nutrients over the winter. But I noticed that I've really got to keep my eye on the weather. I get concerned if the highs during that day are going to be close to or above freezing, and we've got soil moisture with what our cattle or our goats or our lambs can do to that soil. Can you talk about that a little bit and what, how we should watch that if we're going to have above freezing temperatures with this livestock on it in the winter? Sure. Well, cattle uh, are 
I guess I should say livestock in general definitely can cause some compaction issues if the soil is thawed out and and so it's something to be aware of you know a lot of times on a on a warm day maybe the top inch or two gets a little soft and yet it's frozen down below that I really don't think that is much of an issue to be concerned about but when we get the total thaws if it's muddy or or a lot of moisture whatever in the soil there it's definitely a concern and those might be some times to pull animals off and and put them in a corral or you know what you might call it a sacrifice area that you're you're okay with Mm -hmm. the compaction issues and whatever and for our listeners who who've just been introduced to that term of soil compaction can you kind of explain to them what that is so basically, soil becomes compacted when it is, um, it can be caused by a lot of issues, but animal hooves repeatedly in the same area, essentially they it pushes all those soil particles closer and closer together and expels air, it makes it more difficult for moisture to be in there. And so ultimately it creates a, a hardened zone where plants root structures are going to have a hard time moving through it um, taking up nutrients those kinds of things so when it comes to the productivity of that particular area if you've compacted the soil you're going to have anywhere from reduced productivity all the way down to no productivity yeah it would be pretty rare that we get no productivity but definitely reduced productivity would could be an issue and now you talked about keeping an eye on the weather and watching those conditions. And if, if the conditions are going to be conducive to soil compaction to bring the animals into a corral or to a sacrifice area, what what's the difference between a sacrifice area and a corral? Well, sometimes in a pasture, maybe you've got a spot of the pasture that's not very productive anyway. And so you move animals to that area. And so if you do end up with compaction issues, it's not causing you a ton of grief but um, you know depending on how you know how large or small the area is which affects the stock density in that area it could very well get to be similar to a corral setting but most of the time when I think of a pasture sacrifice area it's still got grass that cattle still have a little bit more space than they might have in a corral and but it's just an area that I'm going to, I say to myself, I know I'm affecting productivity in this area, but I'm okay with that because I'm essentially protecting the productivity of the rest of the, you know, I give up a little bit to protect the greater amount. So it's just like what it sounds like. You're just, you're sacrificing a little bit in that area for the greater good of the, of the place as a whole. Yes, exactly. Got it. Okay. Now, can any species of livestock, uh, especially for our listeners who are either doing multi-species grazing or are raising smaller uh, livestock animals, goats, sheep, whatever it may be, can any species compact ground, or is this more of a concern for people with horses and cattle? Well, certainly any species can create compaction issues, but generally speaking, it's more of an issue with the larger species such as cattle and horses. And that's just completely weight-related, I would assume. I, that's definitely got to, a lot to do with it, for sure, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, they don't call me Mr. Obvious for nothing, Scott. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Scott, let's take another break. And then when we come back, I want to talk to you about soil tests and fertilizer and, you know, if we should be applying fertilizer to our pastures this time of year. Smart clothes are all the rage in Silicon Valley. But for us active Westerners, smart doesn't need to connect to the Internet. It just needs to work right. Smart wool socks do exactly that. They're made of merino wool that doesn't itch. They're machine washable and dryer safe. Merino wool keeps you at exactly the right temperature, wicking away sweat so you're dry and warm when you need to be. They're much thinner than traditional wool, so no need to go up a size in your boot to fit your socks. Smart wool socks, the smartest thing you'll ever do for your feet. Slip into a pair today at your favorite D&B Supply. Did you know that a horse's top line plays an important role in how that horse performs, looks, and feels? That's why Neutrina offers top line balance in select horse feeds. Available at D&B Supply. Not all feeds are created equal, and not all feeds can improve a horse's top line. It took years of research and field trials to develop this unique approach to equine health. So look for the top line balance logo on select Neutrina horse feeds. For a healthier top line, stop on by D. B supply for top line balance from Neutrina. All right. Well, I wanted to ask you. So, as we're going into winter and we're managing our pastures, our rangeland this fall, should we be taking soil samples right now and considering fertilizing? My opinion on pasture fertilization is that uh, in the fall, I'm really pretty hesitant to fertilize. There are a couple of trains of thought there, and one is that. I want the pasture to prepare itself, the grass and and forage species, to prepare themselves to go dormant. And so if we put on much fertilizer in the fall, it tends to encourage active plant growth. And so if the plant's actively growing, then then it's uh, not going through the physiological change to prepare for dormancy. And so I, I don't advise that personally. I like to look at a late spring fertilization program in general. With a pasture, it's difficult to justify multiple fertilizer applications over the course of a year simply because the return on your investment is seldom there. And so the way I look at it, a pasture is in decent condition is going to exhibit some higher than normal growth in the springtime anyway, so I don't see a need to fertilize and add to that. What I like to do is fertilize towards the tail end of that. And and so in southwest Idaho, I'm talking uh, generally maybe the middle to the latter part of May. That, I think, is a, a good window to apply fertilizer because what I'm trying to do is encourage plant growth on into the the summertime when it tends to slow down. And so in in my opinion, that's where you get the biggest bang for your buck. Well, Scott, when it comes to managing the pasture in the fall, I wanted to ask you, for somebody who's got a pasture that they're looking at it and they're going, look, I have to start over. Uh, I've got to redo this. If they're going to be ripping out a pasture and reseeding and doing all of that, is, is fall the best time to do that, spring, or does it depend on your particular situation? So that's that's a really good question because it very much is dependent upon your particular situation. And what I mean by that is that um, it's very important, the timing in the fall as well as the availability of water. And so when I talk about timing, we're in a period of time right now that is is probably the best window in the fall to get started with a new seeding. But that is dependent upon the availability of water. And so for some folks, 
They might be on limited water. They only get it once every 10 days or something like that. For other folks, they if they're on some kind of creek water or whatever, they might not have any now. And so it, it's really dependent on the availability of water. The most important thing here is that a new seeding in the fall has to have, one, enough moisture to germinate and then enough moisture to help it grow to a point where it can survive the winter. And so not only enough moisture, but enough time. And so a, a new seeding that happened, you know, let's say the first or middle of October might not have enough time to develop enough to survive the freezing weather in the wintertime. I think we're in the perfect window right now if you've got the irrigation availability Mm -hmm. so that uh, those plants can germinate. They'll have probably a good month or so of growing time. And then, you know, they in that amount of time, they they can be up in that uh, three, four, five inches of plant and uh, be able to survive the winter. Okay. And now if somebody does put in a new seeding and they've got new pasture germinating, uh, coming up this fall, and then, of course, coming back up again next spring. They're successful with that. How long should they wait until they begin grazing on that new pasture? So that's also a, a really good question. It's all dependent on the plants themselves, but what I typically recommend it, on a fall seeding, I would not graze that at all until spring. And so that gives the plants an opportunity. They come up, they... Um, get established, they go dormant, springtime comes, and, and then they really explode and take off. And and so in the springtime, as long as the ground's not too wet, you don't want it so wet that it, as a cow bites, it pulls up the grass plant. You want, it, want the ground firm. But once that plant in the springtime is up to eight inches or, or more in plant height, then you're looking at a, a plant that's firmly established and and really can be grazed without uh, too much concern. On a spring planting, what I typically would recommend is that folks would plant it, get it up and growing, and and once it reaches, say, the six, seven, eight-inch range, I actually prefer that it gets mowed off down to about four inches in plant height. And then, as it regrows from there, it'll be pretty solid. It'll be ready to be grazed once it starts to regrow. And so that just, I guess that helps in the root development and and stability of the plant and the ability to prosper afterwards. Well, I'll tell you what, let's take another commercial break. And then when we come back, I want to talk to you some more about kind of refurbishing or, or redoing our pastures this time of year. D&B knows that life in the West is defined by hard work, innovation, and constant improvement. These values made the West what it is today, and these are the values that have made Wrangler the defining Western brand since 1947. Wrangler Apparel is designed to feel good in the saddle, look sharp at the rodeo, and work hard on the ranch. That's why Wrangler fits with classic Western heritage like a boot in a stirrup. For clothing that's a good value and steeped in Western values, stock up on Wrangler at your favorite D&B supply. 
A well-worn pair of Danner boots has become a hallmark for hard-working and hard-playing people in the West, and everywhere else for that matter. Find your next pair of long-lasting, great-looking, made-in-the-USA Danner boots at D&B Supply. Hold a Danner boot in your hand, and you'll notice the handcrafted precision. Try it on, and you'll feel the difference. Test it against the elements, and you'll appreciate the value of a product that's built to last. From classic hiking boots to handcrafted work boots to fashion-forward looks to fit your daily life, stop on by D&B Supply to try Danner boots on for size. All right, Scott. So, uh, you know, what you were talking about with uh, the time period between the new planting and then coming in and grazing, I just wanted to clarify. So, the harm that could potentially be done if you come and graze a new planting of pasture too soon, is that that the the animal, whatever it may be, might actually pull the roots out of the ground so you're losing that plant? Yes, that's one of the issues that can happen. And it, you have to think about it from the standpoint of the animal. And and so if you if you ever watch a cow eat grass, cows don't have any upper front teeth. And so they basically, their tongue comes out, they wrap it around the grass, pull it into their mouth, and then a little bit of a lift of the head, and it cuts it off there on the bottom front teeth. And so, it, you know, if there's much moisture and little root structure, then as a cow does that, they can very easily pull that plant out. So that's one of the concerns. The other concern is that if that plant hasn't been allowed to grow and mature enough, those seedlings have very little in the way of energy reserves. And so if if you turn livestock on them and, and they graze them down while they're still really young, have little root structure, little little energy reserves in the lower part of the plant. I mean, you can physically exhaust those plants to the point that they just die and, and are gone. Now, we're talking about new seedings here, but then there is the practice of overseeding. What is that? So overseeding is simply a practice of adding some new seed, whatever the choices might be, to an existing pasture. And so it, it can be as simple as going out on a pasture in the early springtime, you know, and, and spreading some seed there. Or it could be, you know, you go out with, a, say, a no-till drill or something like that and drill some seed into an existing pasture. How would somebody determine that their pasture needed to be overseeded? What would they be seeing where they went, okay, I've got to do something here? So if you were looking at a pasture and and you were seeing a lot of open space in between plants, that'd be one of the things that I, you know, would concern me. Sometimes, and I have to, I had a spot in my pasture this summer, I should say I have a spot in my pasture this summer where for whatever reason I had quite a bit of Canada thistle. And so I went and treated that thistle, but I treated it, I guess, severe enough that now I've got a lot of dead grass around that area. Mm -hmm. And so that's an area where because of what I did to get rid of that noxious weed, now I probably need to go back in there and do a little reseeding in that that one area to give that a jump start to come back. Now, if somebody doesn't have access to something like a no-till drill and they want to go out and overseed, just dropping that seed on the surface, are they going to have some efficacy from that, getting seed down enough into the soil that it can it can germinate and, and root in? That depends on a lot of things. And one, it depends on how much plant material 
is there? How much residual material is there already? And, you know, that's one scenario where I would actually recommend a little bit of excessive grazing so that you remove the, more of the plant material than you normally would, and that's going to give that seed a, a greater opportunity to drop through and, and make some contact with the soil. Mm-hmm. One of the things that really affects the success rate of overseeding is do those seeds get some seed-to-soil contact? If they don't, they're just not going to germinate. And so that that's one thing that's important. It can be helped doing some things like um, if you have sprinkler irrigation, overseeding, scattering some seed, and then um, hitting it with water. Sprinkling it will help to push those seeds down. Some other things, one is, we call it a lot of times, a snow seeding. And so if, you know, if the weather looks like it's uh, pretty likely to to drop some good snow or whatever, you can scatter seed then and have the actual snow will help drive it down to where it gets some seed-to-soil contact as well as help provide some moisture for it to germinate in the springtime. Okay. For this type of seed, for pasture seed, it's the seed-to-soil contact we're after, and we can get that, and we can actually germinate seed without some mechanical means of burying it below the surface? Yes, that's exactly what we're after, is that seed-to-soil contact. Okay. And sometimes it even can be helpful to go out and drag that with a light harrow or even a piece of chain-link fence or something. You're just trying to get that seed knocked down to where it can have a chance. Now, you brought up your own weed issues, but if if people have been battling with perennial weeds in their pastures and and they want to try and do something to clean that up a little bit, is this the right time of year to do some weed control? Well, it all depends on what the weed species are because, um, you know, right now a lot of the weeds are kind of at the end of their life cycle. And quite a few of the broadleaf weeds that we fight every year germinate in the springtime. And so if those are the weed issues that you have, then spring, late spring, early summer, those would be the times where you'd find the most success. In the fall, like now, usually what's germinating right now would be some of the invasive grasses, foxtail and cheatgrass going to be germinating here as soon as we get a little moisture and and some of those grasses and so it just really depends on the species that are causing you problems. Okay now we talked about overseeding to try and recuperate in some worse areas in our on our properties. Now we talked off the air about adding legumes. So explain to our audience if you would what a legume is uh, in terms of pasture management and then why we might want to add them in and then I guess we'll talk about how you would do it. So some legumes basically are are species that fix nitrogen out of the atmosphere. And so we're talking that some common legumes that are used in pastures would be alfalfa, bird's foot trefoil, sizer milk vetch, sandfoin. Some of those might not be so familiar with some of the listeners, but mm-hmm. uh, the clovers also are all legumes. The real benefit to legumes in a pasture is that they do fix nitrogen out of the atmosphere. And so in in essence, some active legume can help to reduce the need for 
outside fertilizer purchase. So it's actually, or the legumes are actually, they're grabbing, for lack of a better term, they're grabbing the nitrogen out of the air, and they're depositing some of that nitrogen that they're not using for their own production into the soil? That's exactly right. There are some concerns with legumes. Legumes tend to, I shouldn't say they tend to, but they can cause bloat in some animals. The reason being is that they are, the digestibility of legumes is generally higher than the digestibility of grasses. And so uh, there is potential with, really with any legume and actually with, you know, real young vegetative grasses too, you can have animals bloat. Typically, a pasture that's um, 30% or less as far as the total plant makeup, that's 30% or less of legume that bloats not really an issue. And so I I like to see a pasture that's somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 30% legume and then the remaining made up of, of various grasses. And I, that way it really helps provide some nutrients for the pasture in general and can help reduce the need for outside inputs. And so for somebody who wants to add legumes to their pasture, I guess two questions. How how would they do it? How would they know how much to add in to keep at or below that 25% number? And then, and then how would they go about adding it? Probably the easiest question is how to add it. And so one of the nice things about legume seed, in general, legume seed is, is much more dense as far as, you know, from... If you take into consideration the size of the seed, it, the density is greater, and so it's pretty easy to broadcast it on an existing pasture and have it, you know, make its way down to the soil and and um, germinate. As far as the composition there, that's a a lot more challenging. You kind of have to look at what um, maybe an expected germination rate might be, and then you know, apply seed that way. And and that's going to probably take a lot of guesswork. (laughs) Okay. There's just no easy answer to that. But uh, in general, I would say for a lot of legumes, uh, you know, if you were to scatter a couple pounds of seed to an acre, you'd be pretty safe. Well, Scott, this is great. I think this is really needed, and I really do appreciate you coming on to share all this information. You know, a healthy pasture makes for, I think, a happy person uh, who's running livestock on it because uh, it cuts down on a lot of problems, and you've got happy animals and, and maybe a few more than you had last year. So I really do appreciate you spending the time and sharing this with us today. Can you give us that website and the best way to contact you again if people have further questions? So the the easiest way to get me is by email, which is scottj at uidaho.edu. So that's S-C-O-T-T-J at the letter U, idaho.edu. And then our website is, it's hosted on our county website, so awaihecounty.net. And then you'll find an icon there on the homepage for extension. So click on that, and then it'll take you, um, there'll be options within the extension office for agriculture, and, and that's where you can find information about the Grazing Academy and other programs we offer. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, sharing this all with us. Really, really do appreciate it. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Thank you all for joining us today, and here is to you and your pursuit of the country lifestyle, however you define it. For the DNB Show, I'm Matt Breckwald.